Part Two, Chapter Seven, Part One of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bologna Times. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Two, Chapter Seven, Part One. It was part of what Decode would have called his sane materialism that he did not believe in the possibility of friendship between man and woman. The one exception he allowed confirmed, he maintained, that absolute rule. Friendship was possible between brother and sister, meaning by friendship the frank unreserve, as before another human being, of thoughts and sensations. All the objectless and necessary sincerity of one's innermost life, trying to react upon the profound sympathies of another existence. His favorite sister, the handsome, slightly arbitrary and resolute angel, ruling the father and mother, decode in the first-floor apartments of a very fine Parisian house, was the recipient of Martin decode's confidences as to his thoughts, actions, purposes, doubts, and even failures. Prepare our little circle in Paris for the birth of another South American Republic. One more or less, what does it matter? They may come into this world like evil flowers on a hotbed of rotten institutions, but the seed of this one has germinated in your brother's brain, and that will be enough for your devoted assent. I am writing this to you by the light of a single candle in a sort of inn near the harbor, kept by an Italian called Viola, a protege of Mrs. Gould. The whole building, which, for all I know, may have been contrived by a conquistador farmer of the pearl fishery three hundred years ago, is perfectly silent. So is the plain between the town and the harbor, silent but not so dark as the house, because the pickets of Italian workmen guarding the railway have lighted little fires all along the line. It was not so quiet around here yesterday. We had an awful riot, a sudden outbreak of the populace, which was not suppressed till late today. Its object, no doubt, was loot, and that was defeated, as you may have learned already from the cablegrams sent via San Francisco and New York last night, when the cables were still open. You have read already there that the energetic action of the Europeans of the railway has saved the town from destruction, and you may believe that. I wrote out the cable myself. We have no Reuters agency man here. I have also fired at the mob from the windows of the club, in company with some other young men in, of position. Our object was to keep the Cali de la Constitution clear for the exodus of the ladies and children who have taken refuge on board a couple of cargo ships now in the harbor here. That was yesterday. You should also have learned from the cable that the missing President Ribiera, who had disappeared after the Battle of Santa Marta, has turned up here in Sulaco by one of those strange coincidences that are almost incredible, riding on a lame mule into the very midst of the street fighting. It appears that he had fled in the company of a muleteer called Bonifacio across the mountains 
from the threats of Montero into the arms of an enraged mob. The Capitas of Cargadores, that Italian sailor of whom I have written to you before, has saved him from an ignoble death. That man seems to have a particular talent for being on the spot whenever there is something picturesque to be done. He was with me at four o'clock in the morning at the offices of the Porvenir, where he had turned up so early in order to warn me of the coming trouble, and also to assure me that he would keep his cargadores on the side of order. When the full daylight came, we were looking together at the crowd on foot and on horseback, demonstrating on the plaza and shying stones at the windows of the Intendencia Nostromo, that is the name they call him by here, was pointing out to me his cargadores interspersed in the mob. The sun shines late upon Sulaco, for it has first to climb above the mountains. In that clear morning light, brighter than twilight, Nostromo saw right across the vast plaza, at the end of the street, beyond the cathedral, a mounted man apparently in difficulties with a yelling knot of leperos. At once he said to me, That's a stranger. What is it they are doing to him? Then he took out the silver whistle he is in the habit of using on the wharf. This man seems to disdain the use of any metal less precious than silver, and blew into it twice, evidently a preconcerted signal for his cargadores. He ran out immediately, and they rallied round him. I ran out too, but was too late to follow them and help in the rescue of the stranger whose animal had fallen. I was set upon at once as a hated aristocrat, and it was only too glad to get into the club, where Don Jaime Berges, you may remember him visiting at our house in Paris some three years ago, thrust a sporting gun into my hands. They were already firing from the windows. There were little heaps of cartridges lying about on the open card tables. I remember a couple of overturned chairs, some bottles rolling on the floor amongst the packs of cards scattered suddenly as the caballeros rose from their game to open fire upon the mob. Most of the young men had spent the night at the club in the expectation of some such disturbance. In two of the candelabra on the consoles, the candles were burning down in their sockets. A large iron nut, probably stolen from the railway workshops, flew in from the street as I entered, and broke one of the large mirrors set in the wall. I noticed also one of the club servants tied up hand and foot with the cords of the curtain and flung in a corner. I have a vague recollection of Don Jaime assuring me hastily that the fellow had been detected putting poison into the dishes at supper. But I remember distinctly he was shrieking for mercy, without stopping at all, continuously, and so absolutely disregarded that nobody even took the trouble to gag him. The noise he made was so disagreeable that I had half a mind to do it myself. But there was no time to waste on such trifles. I took my place at one of the windows and began firing. I didn't learn until later in the afternoon whom it was that Nostromo, with his cargadores and some Italian workmen as well, had managed to save from those drunken rascals. That man has a peculiar talent when anything striking to the imagination has to be done. I made that remark to him afterwards, when we met after some sort of order had been restored in the town, and the answer he made rather surprised me. He said, quite moodily, 
And how much do I get for that, senor? Then it dawned upon me that perhaps this man's vanity had been satiated by the adulation of the common people and the confidence of his superiors. Decoe paused to light a cigarette. Then, with his head still over his writing, he blew a cloud of smoke, which seemed to rebound from the paper. He took up the pencil again. That was yesterday evening on the plaza, when he sat on the steps of the cathedral, his hands between his knees, holding the bridle of his famous silver-gray mare. He had led his body of cargadors splendidly all day long. He looked fatigued. I don't know how I looked. Very dirty, I suppose. But I suppose I also looked pleased. From the time the fugitive president had been got off to the S.S. Minerva, the tide of success had turned against the mob. They had been driven off the harbor and out of the better streets of the town, into their own maze of ruins and tolderias. You must understand that this riot, whose primary object was undoubtedly the getting hold of the San Tome silver stored in the lower rooms of the custom house, besides the general looting of the ricos, had acquired a political coloring from the fact of two deputies to the provincial assembly, Senores Garmacho and Fuentes, both from Bolson, putting themselves at the head of it. Late in the afternoon, it is true, when the mob, disappointed in their hopes of loot, made a stand in the narrow streets to the cries of Viva la Libertad! Down with feudalism! I wonder what they imagine feudalism to be. Down with the Goths and paralytics! I suppose the Senores Camacho and Fuentes knew what they were doing. They are prudent gentlemen. In the assembly they called themselves moderates, and opposed every energetic measure with philanthropic pensiveness. At the first rumors of Montero's victory, they showed a subtle change of the pensive temper, and began to defy poor Don Juste Lopez in his presidential tribune with an effrontery to which the poor man could only respond by a day's smoothing of his beard and the ringing of the presidential bell. Then, when the downfall of the Rubieras cause became confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt, they have blossomed into convinced liberals, acting together as if they were Siamese twins, and ultimately taking charge, as it were, of the riot in the name of Monterist principles. Their last move of eight o'clock last night was to organize themselves into a Monterist committee, which sits, as far as I know, in a posada kept by a retired Mexican bullfighter, a great politician, too, whose name I have forgotten. Thence they have issued a communication to us, the Goss and paralytics of the Amarilla Club, who have our own committee, inviting us to come to some provisional understanding for a truce, in order, they have the impudence to say, that the noble cause of liberty should not be stained by the criminal excesses of conservative selfishness, as I came out to sit with Nostromo on the cathedral steps, the club was busy considering a proper reply in the principal room, littered with exploded cartridges, with a lot of broken glass, blood smears, candlesticks, and all sorts of wreckage on the floor. But all this is nonsense. Nobody in the town has any real power except the railway engineers, whose men occupy the dismantled houses acquired by the company for their town station on one side of the plaza, and Nostromo whose cargadores were sleeping under the arcades along the front of Anzani's shops. 
a fire of broken furniture out of the intendencia saloons mostly gilt was burning on the plaza in a high flame swaying right upon the statue of charles the fourth the dead body of a man was lying on the steps of the pedestal his arms thrown wide open and his sombrero covering his face the attention of some friend perhaps the light of the flames touched the foliage of the first trees uh, on the alameda and played on the end of a side street nearby blocked up by a jumble of ox-carts and dead bullocks sitting on one of the carcasses a lepero muffled up smoked a cigarette it was a truce you understand the only other living being on the plaza besides ourselves was a cargador walking to and fro with a long bare knife in his hand like a sentry before the arcades where his friends were sleeping and the only other spot of light in the dark town were the lighted windows of the club at the corner of the calais after having written so far don martin de Cobb, the exotic dandy of the parisian boulevard got up and walked across the sanded floor of the cafe at one end of the albergo of united italy kept by giorgio viola the old companion of Garibaldi. The highly colored lithograph of the faithful hero seemed to look dimly in the light of one candle, at the man with no faith in anything except the truth of his own sensations. Looking out of the window, Descartes was met by a darkness so impenetrable that he could see neither the mountains nor the town, nor yet the buildings near the harbor, and there was not a sound as if the tremendous obscurity of the placid gulf spreading from the waters over the land had made it dumb as well as blind presently decode felt a light tremor of the floor and a distant clank of iron a bright white light appeared deep in the darkness growing bigger with a thundering noise the rolling stock usually kept on the sidings in Recon, was being run back to the yards for safekeeping like a mysterious stirring of the darkness behind the headlight of the engine, the train passed in a gust of hollow uproar by the end of the house, which seemed to vibrate all over in response. And nothing was clearly visible but, on the end of the last flat car, a negro, in white trousers and naked to the waist, swinging a blazing torch-basket incessantly with a circular movement of his bare arm. Descartes did not stir. Behind him, on the back of the chair, from which he had risen, hung his elegant Parisian overcoat, with a pearl-gray silk lining. But when he turned back to come to the table, the candlelight fell upon a face that was grimy and scratched. His rosy lips were blackened with heat, the smoke of gunpowder. Dirt and rust tarnished the luster of his short beard. His shirt-collar and cuffs were crumpled. The blue silken tie hung down his breast like a rag. A greasy smudge crossed his white brow. He had not taken off his clothing, nor used water, except to snatch a hasty drink greedily for some forty hours. An awful restlessness had made him its own, had marked him with all the signs of desperate strife, and put a dry, sleepless stare into his eyes. He murmured to himself in a hoarse voice, I wonder if there's any bread here looked vaguely about him, then dropped into the chair and took the pencil up again. He became aware he had not eaten anything for many hours. End of Part 2, Chapter 7